Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is going to be a cool day, a really cool day, because I've got Scott McDermott with me. Scott is a man who has been achieving things that I that that put tears into my eyes just thinking about them. So and I want to figure out how the hell did he do that? And so I'm I'm extremely grateful that Scott came onto my show. Scott, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, Scott, you are a man who has defined himself as someone who doesn't give up. And that is really in, in a multitude of settings. But to just give you, give you guys some inkling, he likes to run and swim a little bit. And from now and then he jumps on the bike. Uh, just little distances. What was sort of the, 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 the last race you did? Ah, uh, well, Ultraman World Championships is a 10-kilometer swim, 426-kilometer bike ride, and an 84.5K double marathon to finish it out. That's right. So, you know, something we do leisurely in the morning, basically. You know, sure. exactly. For fuck's sake. <laughs> As I said, that, that puts tears in my eyes. Oh, first of all, I love to swim, okay? But after 2Ks, I get bored out of my brain. When I was running after 10Ks, it was madness. Oh, God, there's only so many songs you can go through in your head. So just that achievement is amazing. But there's yeah. so much more to your story because you had some serious roadblocks uh, somewhere along the line. So there's so much that we can talk about. And it's so hard to begin. So let's, let's begin at the start. Were you always a sportive young man or were you as a boy? What, how did things go there? No, not at all. Um, and it's interesting, and I love the chance to chat about it because people see the accomplishments that I've done. And they, oh, yeah, it's easy for you. It's great. You're just always that way. Yeah, that's not how that worked. Um, if we go all the way back, you know, I was adopted into a family of, of wonderful people by, by many rights, and they were stuck in a pattern of, of alcohol and parties and, and all that kind of crap. And um, childhood was challenging. Um, you know, my parents had another child. They were said they couldn't have children and then they adopted and they got me. And then nine months later, they had my brother and, um, you know, that's how that goes. Right. Um, you know, kind of thing. I, it was a bit longer than that, but anyway, it was, I think it was a year and a few highway was, doesn't matter. We're, we're a year and a half apart, but, uh, you know, that's kind of how that goes. And, my parents are amazing people. I never want to say anything that slights them. That's not, that's not the thing. They were caught in their own stuff. Like people get caught and it, it's not them. It's, they're just stuck. And, uh, you know, I was the replacement kid and I, I very quickly was never as good enough. I wasn't as good as my brother. And, uh, you know, he, he just could do no wrong. And he was a great guy. He's, he's a fantastic kid and, and all that kind of stuff. And, I grew up, you know, a little bit chunky and overweight and not athletically talented and not really well coordinated. And I didn't do well at sports. Um, you know, and my brother easily did, <laughs> you know, what he tried, he was good at. And I was not that way. And I really struggled to find a place to fit in for a long time. And then I had some success in individual sports. Like I was doing fairly well in gymnastics and then I did really well in diving and three meter springboard diving. I actually went to the provincial championships and won a gold medal. And that was awesome. 
But I came home and I can still remember vividly the day that I came home and, you know, we flew home and the, the team, I think my coach gave me a ride home and I, I, I walked into the house and it was really late at night. It was, I don't know, after midnight or something like that. And I walked in and I have this gold medal in my backpack and I'm, I'm just busting. Right. And my dad comes out of his room and he's a little bit cut and he looks at me and he says, so I heard you did okay. Yep. Well, good. And he walked off and it was never spoken of again. I, I put my gold medal in a toffee fay box, like a chocolate box, and I slid it under my bed and I never looked at it again for like 20 years. We just didn't talk about it. And it's just like, okay, so that didn't work. You know, as a kid, you're like, kids want attention, hmm. right? They just, you just want your parents to love you. That's it. You just want attention. And it's not that my parents didn't love me, but they're stuck in their other things going on. You know, my dad was a mechanic and ran a garage and, and, you know, there was, they were just, there was just alcohol all the time. That's just how that was. And, um, you know, it just was what it was. So sports didn't work. It, it didn't get me any attention kind of thing. And, and as a kid, I don't understand. I didn't understand until later, but so then I started chasing down gymnastics and, but there was a thing in my voice. Like, so I, I was at the provincial gymnastics championships and they never, like it's a three day event. They never came to watch. And, and one day my mom came and she was tipsy and she watched, my worst event and then went home, even though there was two more events that day kind of thing. So as a kid, you're just like, Oh man. So a few months later, I broke my back in gymnastics. I was doing a vaulting move and I opened my legs too soon in the pike rotation and my hands missed the horse. And I landed flat on the box facing the ceiling. And I, I cracked a vertebrae in half and crushed the tops and bottoms of T12 L1 L2 and her needed a disc and it were bulged the disc. And, you know, cause as a kid, I, part some part of my subconscious was like, well, this will get attention. But then they were just mad because now I was useless and complaining all the time and my back hurt, you know? So it, it just, so it was, it, it's sad to look back on it and realize that as a kid, I just, you know, you just want what your parents love and you just want attention and you do all the things you can do. And mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is, right? My dad passed away of a, an ulcer in his stomach that led to death when he, when I was 16, he was out in the field working and you know, he, he passed away kind of thing. And Shit. Um, yeah, mom got, mom ended up, um, you know, I had to stay with my aunt and uncle for a while while mom went to a center for a while and cleaned up and, you know, it was, it was what it was. And I love my mom. I love my dad. I, it's nothing against them. I, they were stuck in it. You know, alcohol is a trap. It's a, it's a thing. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing. So, um, I was never an athlete, uh, after that, you know, I kind of just, I left it alone and I was scared to be an athlete for the longest time. I had, I had three different doctors tell me I'd be in a wheelchair by 40 because of the damage I'd done to my back. They're like, do not play sports. You are at risk. If you hit your back again, you'll be paralyzed. Like do not do sports. That's what I was told when I was 15, 16. So I bought into that for the longest time. And it wasn't until I was in my twenties, early twenties. And I would, you know, I would, I would, try to go skiing and my back would hurt too much. And I would try to shovel the driveway with snow and my back would ache and I would take painkillers and lay on the couch. Mm. And it was, you know, it just, my back hurt all the time. Mm. And I went to a doctor and, you know, we did some x-rays. I, I hate when I say, you know, but anyway, I went to a doctor cause you don't know. That's why I'm telling you it's a terrible habit. <laughs> it's crept into society's vernacular, I think. Um, so I went to saw a doctor and he just, he just shook his head. He's like, kid, you got to get strong. You need to strengthen your core muscles because your back is completely unsupported. It's just grinding on itself. Like, of course your back hurts. You're 
fat and out of shape. Like, so you got to get in shape. So I was like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. And I was freshly married. And so I took this little fitness challenge thing at the local rec center and I made a bit of a difference and it was kind of cool, but I never hung on to it because I liked food too much. And I liked, you know, I, I, people say they have, see, I said, you know, again, people say they have a sweet tooth and I say, no, no, I have 32 sweet teeth. I don't have one sweet tooth. I eat all the ice cream. What did the ice cream give you? Well, that becomes a, see, oh, you asked the good questions. You really do. Why ice cream? Why are sweets such a big thing? And it's funny. I'm 52 now and I coach people on nutrition, right? I've learned, I have studied and studied and studied nutrition for the last 23, almost 24 years. I've studied nutrition and I know all of the mechanics of how to be optimally healthy. I understand that frontwards and backwards. That is no problem. And to myself, I'm still like, why do you go off the rails once in a while? Why ice? What's the deal with ice cream? And, you know, it, it took a lot of soul searching and working with different really smart people to realize that in my mind, ice cream equals love, huh. right? Because when my dad would work all day at the shop and, you know, as a young boy, your dad is like, your idol, like you respect him to the ends of the world, no matter what. And he would come home and quite often very late at night and honestly shouldn't have been driving, but whatever, that's how things were in the seventies. And he would, on the way home from work, he would stop by the store and he would buy ice cream or cakes or candies or cookies or some sweet treat because to him growing up in the thirties, mm -hmm. that was, you are rich. If you can afford the dessert, fancy stuff, right? That was that was a sign of wealth growing up in the thirties where they had nothing on the farm. Right. So he would come home with some amazing dessert and he, every night he would come home with whatever it was, a root beer float or a, a Sunday, or he would bring bananas and chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, strawberry ice cream, whipped cream. And we would have, we would do the whole thing dessert every time dad came home. And my dad never, ever said the words, I love you. That was, he was taught boys don't say that boys don't cry. Men don't have emotions. That was, that was right. That's how he was raised. So as a kid, you just want to know that your dad loves you. Never heard those words, but he would give us ice cream. So I have anchored in my mind, the thought that ice cream equals love. Candy equals love. Cupcakes equal love. And of course that's stupid. <laughs> They don't, <laughs> but it's taken a long time to realize that. In his language, it meant love. That yes. was his way of saying, I love you. And Absolutely. so let's do not, it, it might be hard for us to understand with our current way of thinking, but for someone mm. who grew up in the Great Depression um, and in, uh, in, in a poor environment, yeah. I, get, I get goosebumps to just yeah. actually think yeah. about that. That is, yeah, yeah it is a, a very powerful thing. And, and it just shows how, how core beliefs get laid down at such an early stage. Um, and yeah. at that time when they get laid down, it is black and white. That mm -hmm. is your perception of the truth. And it's hardwired from then on. Right. And you can yeah. do as much you, as positive thinking, whatever you wish to do during, during your adulthood. Those core beliefs, if you don't recognize them and allow yourself to work with them, will come back to haunt you in this case or you can just say okay they're a message from an old time and guess what i have an ice cream now but it's a treat 
And yeah. <laughs> I don't need the ice cream now for every single time I get a bad email or I get, uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. 100%. It's like, oh, I'm having a rough day. I need ice cream. Oh, I, I got a, I did really well today. I get nice. Like it, it, that's not actually supporting me. That's actually sending me backwards. Exactly. And, right. And so it's about separating those and going, realizing my dad loved me. Yeah. He absolutely loved me and he didn't know how to say it. So that's how he expressed it. But the, the two are unrelated. I, I can separate those two things. And then now I can take care of myself and I don't need to be overweight. I can be fit. And yeah, I'm 52 with, I, you see my abs. It's great. Like it's, it's a fun <laughs> way to live. Like it's, you know, I'm healthy and vibrant and have lots of energy and I don't, I don't, I don't drink coffee. I don't need to, I, I have, I've, got all the energy I need and I, I run about my day and I train all the time. It's wonderful mm. because I've had to separate those two things. Which is beautiful, but you didn't yeah. know it then you didn't know it. So you were still a man who was now trapped in life to a certain degree because you had yeah. on the one hand, the, the doctor's advice, which says, Oh my God, don't even move wrong because you're back. You will be paralyzed. Now yeah. that's a hard thing to say. And that yeah. to a certain degree, Uh, it was a bit of a belief system in amongst doctors in the past. In the reality, yeah. nowadays we know it's other way around. So uh, the pendulum has swung in the medical field, yeah. Um, yeah. and with you, you were caught in that swing. So mm -hmm. now, well, how did your new life start? Did you start running to the ice cream shop and back? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no. yeah, right. You know, before I broke my back and actually a little bit after too, um, I had to run away from bullies all the time. That's uh -huh. mostly where I learned to run. <laughs> so we would go to the movie theater and, you know, living in a small town in Northern British Columbia in Canada, we just, we just walked to the theater, you know, it's three or four kilometers and whatever. That's what you did or you ride your bike or whatever, but we would walk before we had bikes and things. And, uh, and then the bullies would throw popcorn at you and yell at you and tell you you're dead after the movie and all that kind of stuff. So you just ran home with, with, <laughs> five or six guys chasing you. So I, I got pretty good at running and you know, I was right into following Terry Fox, who was the Canadian with cancer that ran across Canada while well, he ran from um, Newfoundland to St. John's or sorry, to uh, uh, Thunder Bay when the cancer overtook him again. Terry Fox is quite famous around Canada. He's a quite a Canadian hero and uh, the Terry Fox run has occurred every year since his passing. And I've actually facilitated it in our town for about, I don't know, 18 years or something, but wow. uh He got me into running. And of course, when I broke my back, I stopped for quite a few years. And then I, I slowly picked it up again um, after kind of my big pivotal point. So my big pivotal point, I guess, was I was in architecture. I had been in architecture for 13 years. I went to college for it and I was working in a firm and a couple different firms over the years. And I was in this one particular firm. I was, um, I was just sick all the time. I had tinnitus ringing in my ears so loud that I would lay in bed at night and I would say to my wife, don't talk to me because I can't hear your words. I can just hear feedback. Like it's just, it's awful. Please don't talk to me. So, you know, married people, like it's not great to have your wife not be able to talk to you in bed. Although some people married might say that's good, but never mind. Uh, it's bad. Let's go with that. I had, uh, I had all kinds of problems with circulation in my fingers and toes, partly from the, the spinal injury to a degree. My back was sore all the time. This is before I got in shape and uh, I was overweight. I was, you know, I said, you know, again, I got to catch myself on that. Uh, I was 110 kilos, 100 kilos, you know, 240 pounds, 230 pounds, and just miserable in that 
since uh, I was exhausted all the time. So I was, this is before energy drinks and stuff. And I hated the taste of coffee. I'm still not a big fan. And so I would just take caffeine pills to get through deadlines at work because architecture is full of deadlines. You got a big three, $4 million project and it's got a due date and you got to just work till it's done. And we would pull all nighters and do all these things. And I was on the treadmill of trying to be junior partner in the firm. And I did not know how to eat. And I went to the doctor with all these different problems and allergies and everything. And, and they would send me to this specialist. No, it's not that. And they send me to this specialist. No, it's not that. And of course, every time they refer to you as specialist, you got to wait two or three or four months to get in to see them. And then they do the thing. And then you got to wait a couple weeks to hear back. And then, no, it's fine. Your eye, ears, nose, throat, everything's fine. It's Well, you're like, oh, everything's fine, but I feel like a bag of crap. Like there's got to be something. And I went to my doctor and he finally said, he did a physical and he asked me a bunch of questions. And he says, well, how, what, what kind of food do you eat? And I told him, he's like, well, do you exercise? Well, I don't have time for that. Are you under any kind of stress? Well, yeah, was, I'm a, a manager of all kinds of people. And there's all these projects and deadlines. And, you know, he's like, well, kid, you need to eat right, exercise, get rid of some stress. And for God's sakes, get some sleep. Like five hours a night is insufficient kind of thing. And I was like, well, oh, I can do that. So I, I went and I, I checked out a couple of gyms. I joined a gym. And there was a guy at work that was right into fitness and health. And he was, you know, bodybuilder kind of guy. And I started asking him questions and he started coaching me. And then I just got right into it. And I dropped 40 pounds of fat, put on 18 pounds of muscle and just was like, I just, I was on the top of the world. My energy was through the roof. My, my headaches were gone. My tinnitus went away because I realized it was connected to junk food and sugar and chemicals um, like that are in the food. Uh, my circulation improved. My sore back became irrelevant. I didn't need caffeine pills because I was over the top with energy. Like everything changed. Everything changed. And I was like, I want to do this. Like, because everybody in the office, like at first, like there's 52 people at the time in the office. And at first, uh, you know, they start going, Hey, how can you not have a donut? I'm like, oh yeah, I know I'm taking care of myself these days. I'm going to drop some weight. Yeah, right. You're not having a donut. <laughs> Come on. And they would taunt me. Like, like they would, they would make cinnamon buns and bring them in and go, Come on, buddy. And I was like, no, I'm good. Thanks. You know, I'm not good. But after, after two or three months, when the changes started to become evident, then they'd, they'd come up to my cubicle and they'd sort of, so, uh, how, 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 how you look great. How, what are you doing? Can you, uh, you got any tips for me? And, and within no time, uh, about 40 people in the office were on what was called the plan. And, and, and me and Pat, this guy that, that worked there, that was the fit guy, him and I were like coaching everybody in the office and Excellent. there was, there was workout groups that broke out and we would, you know, it was phenomenal. And I just thought, man, I want to do this. Like I'm on top of the ladder, but I'm on the wrong building. I, I got to, so I quit two weeks from being an associate partner. I quit. I was like two weeks from now I'm locked in and I'm, this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. And I had begun training part-time in a gym and, and, and I just, oh man, I couldn't get enough of it. So I quit <laughs> and my boss was flabbergasted, but he understood. And uh, so I, I worked for about, probably five or six months at a local gym as a trainer and kind of assistant manager. I worked my way up. I did front desk and I, I cleaned the toilets and fixed the hot tub and, you know, fixed the equipment. I learned all the things of running a gym that I could learn, but I couldn't pay my bills. So I went back and did architecture on contract for a year 
And then I built my own gym. I, I found a piece of land in a nearby town that didn't have a good gym. And we built a building and we mortgaged ourselves to death and back and borrowed some money from our parents and aunts and uncles and friends and whatever. And we built a gym and it was just the most amazing thing to do for like 18 years. It was awesome. That's kind of that. That's, I took that change from going from fat to fit and it just became everything I cared about. And to a certain degree, this can become quite addictive and actually in, in a good way, as well as in a bad way, um, yeah. because yeah. there's this kind of obsession and obsessive compulsive. Did you yeah. did your pendulum swing the other way from eating the donuts to counting the calories to being that kind of, no, 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 oh my God, I can't even look at that Twinkie. Um, and you are a bad man for even thinking about sweets kind of thing. Right. You know, I've never played that game. Honestly, Good. Stefan, I've, yeah. I've always held that there's no such thing as bad food. There's food that's appropriate or inappropriate for your goals right now. And I believe in everything in moderation, especially moderation. So once in a while, giver, right? But it needs to be once in a while, right? Correct, correct. It's not what you occasionally eat that determines the state of your health. It is what you consistently and constantly feed yourself. So. 90, 95% of the time I eat phenomenal, healthy, brilliant food from all of the different groups. I am not a fan of any pendulum diets, no carbs, no protein, no fat, no animal, no vegetables, whatever. I I like all the things, right? All the time, like whatever, you know, and, but once in a while, whatever you feel like and balance it, right? Because we're, food is also social. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, it's fuel. 100%. 100%. Like a vehicle, it's fuel. Great. You know, proteins are building blocks, carbohydrates are gasoline, and, and fat is slow-burning fuel and lubrication. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And it's also social, right? You go to you go to grandma's house, and she spent all afternoon baking all these things, and she offers you something. You're not going to go, no, thanks. I'm going to have cottage cheese and celery. Screw you and your homemade pie. Like, that is not happening. <laughs> good, good, good. And that is Mom, so beautiful to hear. ice cream? Yeah. Sure. Sure. And that is, that is exactly the the common sense that, that one likes to see, uh, because it is, yeah, I've, I've, I've lived in, in a household, uh, where for a certain time period, really one of the household members was becoming right of Genghis Khan. I mean, you know, it is, there is, I hate to say the word health Nazi, but you know, it is, that is sort of a a common expression and anyone who has, has lived in such a house knows oh my god you you don't dare to come home because it is just guilt and shame dripping <sighs> from the walls and it is just nah nah this is not this is not a life i want to live yeah food it, people make food the enemy it, mm. it's oh my gosh it, food's not the enemy it just do things that serve you that's right right but we need to say, and I mean, every single show I do where I talk about nutrition, we ha- I'm, I'm make a point of talking about the fact that many of the items that you purchase in a supermarket should not be called food. Food, by definition, is something that sustains life and that uh, increases your health and, and, and well-being. 
I'm sorry, Pringles or any kind of other uh, chips do not necessarily fit into that. Okay, so oh, yeah. that's not food. No, that's my point. So therefore, yeah. let's let's be quite clear when we're talking food, we are talking about about beautiful things that yeah. that are there. You don't need to do to to go back to to making it all yourself and rearing the cow by hand. That's not what we are saying. But bottom line is, yeah, okay, you, you have a choice to make. You get to make a choice every single yeah. time you put something in your mouth. And there are beautiful things that you know are healthy. And there are things yeah. that are not so healthy. And I love your 99 sure. or 95% to 5% yeah. ratio. I think that's quite cool. That will get you a hell of a long way. Okay. Yeah. So. And even with that, I'll have to tell you, Stefan, I'm a snob when it comes to junk food. Uh-huh. Right. If I want ice cream, it needs to be like the good stuff. <laughs> like, right. Like I'm going to read the ingredients. And if it says cream, sugar, whole eggs, yeah. flavor, I'm in. Yeah, exactly. Right? But if it says guar gum and monosodium flour to fruit of flavor for zaba zaba tuba lubu modified milk ingredients love it right if if, uh, there's this guy that i know and he 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 made a little youtube video of it but he took four different kinds of store-bought ice cream like the junkie and he he put them in scooped them in a bowl and then a week later on the counter he, he video a week later they had not changed shape they had not molded melted or Change. They were just a different temperature. That's You're not ice cream. Kidding me. Ice cream should melt into yep. a puddle and then get fuzzy <laughs> and green. Right? So <laughs> I'm a snob. When it, like if I want my wife loves, like it was her birthday recently, and her favorite dessert in the world is lemon meringue pie. Uh-huh. Great. So I went to the supermarket and I bought all of the raw ingredients to make flour and I bought all like I bought lemons and I bought all of the raw ingredients to make the filling and I got the egg whites and I made her a lemon meringue pie 100% from scratch everything real food and it's freaking amazing isn't it yeah is that a pain in the butt did it take four hours instead of you know oh it's four dollars and 99 cents and it says grandma's goodness on it so i'm sure it's fine but it's got twelve thousand chemicals and it's not even really yellow it's colored that way no thanks <laughs> uh, you have your lemon ring pie and has a bitter aftertaste of chemical no thanks mm. <laughs> so i'm a snob when it comes to dessert i love your attitude because that is exactly that it's a quality that you're taking and because you have made it yourself you know exactly what is in there um yeah. it is i'm like that when it comes to sausages or meat products because i come from germany where we have got some fantastic meat products no two ways around oh. it but i've learned how to make sausages and so to sometimes you eat something and you think what the hell have I just put in my mouth? Um, yeah. That is, you know, oh, mm, a lovely taste of sawdust combined with a little <laughs> bit of, oh, what's that chemical? And I tell yeah, you what, yeah. I tell you what, a friend of mine went to a local butcher and he had, what was it? It was lamb and, no, venison. That's right. He had, he had shot a, a deer. And so he brought a venison to the butcher. And the butcher sort of said, yeah, make us some sausages. Which kind of flavor do you want? And he said, what do you mean? Um, oh, yeah, do you want, do you want beef or, or pork sausages flavor? And he said, what? 
I mean, this is venison, etc. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which flavor? I've, he could not understand. This yeah. butcher was was used to using chemicals with whatever ingredient there was. And you think, what the hell? Whilst I go out there, there are beautiful sausage recipes out there on the internet and, and you get the raw ingredients. Make sure that the fat content is sort of right, that you're not producing sticks and bricks kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. then you go out there and it's the most, oh, you... Yeah. When you do things yourself, you create such beautiful celebrations of of love, of food, of of activity. It is true mindfulness uh, that you can create with with actually doing your lemon meringue pie, ah, and you show love. You show love to your wife. That it's is, in the, it's exactly in the, food. the love is in the food. Exactly, it goes in another ingredient. How did she? How did she respond to it? Oh, over the moon! <laughs> and my nine-year-old just was in rapture. Like, oh, yeah. nice, oh, yeah. nice, 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 nice. So here you go from from a young man who's running away from quite predictable trouble kind of thing towards a man who is running towards a good life and who's who's actively moving step by step. But let's go back when you when you sort of started in the NDA or when you finished in the architecture business. Here you are basically you were employed, money was coming in, and now you have uh, acquired a new disease, the disease of being self employed. And yes. <laughs> so talk about stress, talk about, okay. So yeah. how did that go? Because there you are. I mean, you probably initially can't afford trainers for Africa. So you probably do every single training session yourself, plus then take on the private client, plus then clean up afterwards. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would have been no. fun. <laughs> Not. <laughs> yeah, it's. It, you know, it's a good thing about being fit and healthy and younger. You know, I was 31 or two yeah. and, you know, that you got a better energy sense in that sense because you got to do everything, like you said. And Michael Gerber has a great book called The E-Myth. And in The E-Myth, he talks about that there's there's the technician. The technician is somebody who's technically good at their job, whether you're a cook or a baker or a personal trainer or whatever it is, a woodmaker, whatever you're doing, you're good at it. And then you have what he calls the entrepreneurial seizure where you're like, my boss is a loser. I could do a better job myself. I'm going to open my own business and I'm going to make all the money. And then, so you do that and then you realize, holy crap, I got to do payroll and taxes and I got to hire and I got to do marketing and I got to maintain, and I got to fix and I got to, and I also got to be the technician. And I got to come up with a big idea. And so now you're doing all the things and it will drive you nuts and crush you. And you need to learn to grow. I was very smart. I will say I hired, I had a business coach right from the word go and I learned very quickly that I needed to hire a manager. I needed to have a personal trainer, like a head of training. Yeah. I could not be the head of training. I didn't uh, get to do all the training. I could do a little, but I had to do very little because I needed the, uh, there were things I needed to do. And I learned very quickly that I needed a team of people or I would just go insane and self-destruct. And that was a big gift. And we were able to run the business for a good long time, quite successfully, by and large, and, and learn a lot. So it was good. And it's fascinating now with, with COVID in 2020, we were given the provincial order on March 17th to shut all gyms are being closed for, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of saw the writing on the wall there. I knew 
that that was at least three months, if not longer. I knew that right away because that's not how that goes. But uh, I made the decision quickly. I did the math. After a couple of days, I talked to my accountant. I looked at things up. I checked with my bookkeeper. I made an Excel spreadsheet. And I was like, even if we do online programs and I'm at the gym every day doing videos of how to work out at home and this is the program and I give meal plans and I do like so you're going to go from 80 hours a week to what 120 hours a week like you can't work anymore what are you going to do like and I did all the math and I thought even if I charge a premium and it's unicorn fairy dust successful it's still not even close to the numbers to keep this empty building empty for three or four months. There's no chance this survives. And so I made the decision to close forever. We sold off all our equipment. Uh, and then we started working really hard to find somebody to rent the building from us and take care of that whole side of the fence. And we actually found a church and oh, they're, wow. they're in rapture. They're in, I'm going to say they're in heaven <laughs> in their new building. They love, it's phenomenal. They had been looking for quite a while and just could not find the right space. And we managed to negotiate a a good enough lease. And now I get to actually do what I love. Like I get to race and train and I get to coach people one-on-one -on -one and I get to do online coaching programs. And I, I get to live my passion. I built this little, this little studio above the stairs in my back storage area and I get to coach people and it's brilliant. It's amazing. It's like the biggest gift in the world that I get to help people and do all of what I love and none of what I didn't love. So it's you, awesome. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so pleased for you that, that you were able to, to, after 18 years, that you were not hanging in there with claws, basically like, ah, that possum, I will not give up. That um, was my first response. That mm. was my first response. We're going to dig in just like I do when I'm racing. I'm like, we're mm. just going to out-suffer everybody. Yeah, mm. no, you're not. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Having said that, having said that, we need to explore that mindset because initially there was that mindset, hey, I can go from fat to fit and you have achieved that. Then you said, okay, my new life, okay, I'm going to be there. Uh, and yeah, fair call, you actually put a power team together, which was really cool. I mean, well done there. And that allowed you to actually succeed. But now you're still you're still doing yeah training sessions etc. But there is a long way between what you had been doing there, getting fit, to oh let's swim ten k's you know and go for a, a little bike ride that will be what four hundred eighty k's four hundred twenty six yeah yeah come on man um, okay twenty six maybe four hundred twenty six come on <laughs> so how did that journey go where did that hunger come from what made you move into that field? Well, it's interesting on many, many levels. And that became apparent as it unfolded. But the initial spark was that there was a half Ironman triathlon in our town. And they ran it the first time in 2004, which is a 1.9 uh, kilometer swim, a 90 kilometer bike and a 21K half marathon. And I thought, I wonder if I could finish one of those. That looks really neat. Like it would look really cool. And that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I can, I can put off drowning. Like, you know, I've, I've been in a lake, I've been in a pool. I can, I can fool around. Like I used to be on a, a springboard diving team so I yeah. could dive off the board and swim to the edge. I could swim. <laughs> right. Sure. And 
I could ride the crap out of a spin bike for an hour. Like when I taught spin classes, everybody loved me. They, yeah. they thought I was the devil because I would make everybody turn into a puddle of goo for an hour. I could ride the crap out of a stationary bike. I didn't even own an outdoor bike. And I thought, well, I used to run when I was in high school and you know, I'm 35 and yeah. my back's doing pretty well. I could, I could probably pick up running again. I'm curious. So I signed up for it and I hired a coach and he taught me how to swim. Cause I realized very quickly, I did not know how yeah. to swim distance at all. And I started, I bought a, a bike bicycle and I learned to ride outside which is a whole different game than a spin bike, obviously. And I started run training and I did the race in 2005 in July. And I was eighth in my age group and 20th overall. And I was like, I just loved it. And I got a roll down spot for a full Ironman, Ironman Canada, five weeks later. Hmm. And I went to my coach excitedly. I'm like, coach, I got a spot to Ironman. Do you think I can, what do you think? And he's like, well, it's going to be tough, but I think we'll get you across that finish line. You're pretty determined and stubborn. So great. So I doubled all my distances and then took a, a week to taper and I did Ironman Canada and I finished in 11 hours and 57 minutes and my whole world was changed And on the bike ride. So a full Ironman is a 3.8 K swim, 180 K bike in a marathon, 42.2 K. And I remember being on that bicycle and I literally, I started to cry. Because for the first time in my life, I was proud of myself because I got myself there. And I knew I had enough time to finish the bike ride under cutoff. And I had, I knew I could, even if the marathon was slow, I could finish the race. And I was proud of myself for the first time on my own terms with nobody watching. Wow. And it was a game changer. It was phenomenal. And then I had found my new passion. But what was interesting was I finished this Ironman and all my friends are like, Oh my gosh. Yes. Incredible. You're so amazing. And my family was like, what you did a run. Oh, okay. Hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? They, they just didn't care. They didn't notice. And a part of me realized, and I did not understand this for many, 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 many years. I was still trying to get attention. I was still trying to be good enough for my parents, right? I was still trying to be good enough. And so the next year I did Ironman and I did it while I was sick. That'll show them. Look, I still finished. No, they didn't notice. And then the next year I did it faster and they didn't notice. And I got a spot on team Canada. So I raced around the world with the flag on my back. And I went to, uh, I went to Miami and I went to new Orleans and I went all around the States and I went all over Canada and I went to, to the world championships in Holland. And they didn't notice. And then I qualified for the, and I went to the world championship in Australia. And they didn't notice. They went, oh, did you go on vacation? Yeah, that's what I did. I went on vacation. All right, fine, whatever. And so then I was training for Ironman Canada in 2010. And I actually had a team of, of six athletes that I had coached from nothing to Ironman. They were all there with me. We had a, we had a bunch of people that I was coaching. I'd become a really good coach. I'd become nationally certified. I was coaching people for Ironman. I had started a triathlon club. I was doing all these things. And I was having lunch with Cheryl Corbett and a, an Australian named Nick Mallett was there. And we were chatting it up over, over drinks and um, talking about different things. And he goes, all right, you go to give Ultraman a try. And I was like, shut up. Those guys are nuts. And he's like, nah, think about it, Mike. And I, okay, I won't do the Australian accent anymore because <laughs> Canadian doing an Australian accent. But I, uh, he said, think about it. Once you start swimming, 
you're a decent swimmer. And if you had a kayak beside you that would give you electrolytes and drinks, you know, a little bit of snack once in a while, you could swim for quite a while. I'm like, well, I guess so. 10K is a lot open water. That's a long swim. He goes, yeah, but you can manage. He says, and then the first day is only 145K of the bike. He's like, you could do that easily. I'm like, okay. And then day two is a 276K bike. So that's the second part of the bike ride. And it's a 12 hour cutoff. So you're going to have to hurry, but you can average a good speed. You could finish that one and under, under the cutoff. I was like, well, yeah, but day three is a double marathon. Like, come on three days of full tilt, like, and a double marathon. Come on, Nick. He's like, but think about it. He says your bass marathons, what? 320, 328. You could run a, you could run a slow four hour marathon, have a break and a snack and then walk a second marathon in eight hours. And you're done under 12 and you're a finisher. And I was like, <gasps> you're right. I signed up like the next day for Ultraman Canada in 2011. And I trained my arse off. And I have never been more prepared for a race. And in Ultraman Canada in 2011, I was sixth overall. I was 20 minutes in a 27 hour race. I was 20 minutes from second place. <laughs> I had found my new, new passion and I friggin' loved it. It was amazing. And that year, my wife, uh, after 15 years of trying to get pregnant, we finally through fertility clinics and all the things my lovely, amazing wife has gone through the ringer and back. She's the most phenomenal human being. I just love her to bits. We've been married July. This coming up will be 30 years. Anyway, she's, uh, we finally were pregnant, which we were over the moon excited. So I took 2012 off and by January, 2013, I'm not sure if it was more me or more her, but it, it, it was mutual. You need to start racing again. Cause you're driving me nuts. So, so I, I, cashed in my qualifying spot for the world championships for Ultraman and off I went to Ultraman world championships. And, uh, it was just an amazing experience. I had full on imposter syndrome. Like I, I felt like a kindergarten kid in high school. Like, what am I doing here with all these real athletes? But I finished it. I was 21st in the world and I just had so much fun and it was a great vacation. It was our first time going to Hawaii. It was beautiful. Wow. It, was magic. it was awesome. And then I took 2014 off, just did some Ironmans and some other little races and stuff, <laughs> little races. But, and then I was like, okay, you know what? I want to go back to Ultraman Worlds in 2015 and I want to race. I don't want to do, okay, I want to race. I want to be like top five or better. I want to race. And so I hired a new coach and trained crazy hard. And I called my friend, Drew Kenworthy, who's a filmmaker. He'd made, did a lot of wedding stuff, but he also was doing some little commercials. He'd done some commercials for me because of course I got into triathlon so hard that all of a sudden I was a race director for a race and then another race. And so we were doing a promo film and Drew was doing these commercials and I called him up and I said, Hey Drew, would you be interested in filming a documentary of me getting to the world championships? Like this regular guy, cause I don't look like a triathlete. Like triathletes have long legs and they weigh 160 pounds and they're skinny and fast. And I'm 195, 200 pounds. I've got tree trunk legs that are short. I have a long back. I don't look like a triathlete. Like I outweigh everybody by 40 to 60 pounds. Right. So, but I'm stubborn. Like I just never quit. And that's how I, and I thought it would be fun to film that because nobody's ever heard of Ultraman. Nobody's heard of Iron Man. Nobody's ever heard of Ultraman. It's this quiet little race. It's not televised. There's no prize money. 
you get a t-shirt and a thing around your neck if you finish. Great. Like, no, like it's just, you do it because you love it, not because of anything else, right? There's no fame. There's no sponsorship money. There's no prize money. There's nobody cares. And they, we do it because we love it. We thought it'd be really great to film that. And in 2015, I was having a phenomenal race. I had the 10K swim. I had done faster than the year prior, which, or the, the time prior, which wasn't hard. I, 2013, I threw up for um, almost three hours while I swam for four and a half. But anyway, never mind. Oceans are rough. And so I was having a great race, got out of day two in 14th position overall. And I started day two and I was just crushing the bike ride. And I was in 10th overall and I was hunting number nine. I could see his crew van getting closer, which meant he's closer. And I'm just hammering the bike. And I was going down a little bit of a mountainside in the rain. And apparently there was algae on the bridge deck that I went across. Now, I don't remember that because I woke up three days later in the brain trauma unit on Oahu, a different island because we were on Kona. And we know biomechanically that my, my front tire had slid out to the right on the algae. And because I had put my hand down clearly, I don't remember anything, but I had sprained all my fingers, sprained my wrist, broke my arm in half, shattered my shoulder in four pieces, broke five ribs, and then began to, to cartwheel down the bridge. I, I took a big chunk of cartilage out of my knee, tore my MCL, um, had a big scrape line across my ankle. I split my eye open and carved the side of my face half off. And I broke my skull open. As I flipped around, my helmet spun because it wasn't done up tight enough. And I broke a big chunk of my skull. Had the worst brain injury you can get. And it was bad. Yeah. So that was, that changed my life once again. New direction. No shit, Sherlock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> having Glad said. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, we we know you're a super achiever. Obviously, you do the same when you've got an accident. I uh, will. Uh, I have nothing less from you. Okay, um, that was on Hawaii. Um, ha oh fuck, where to start? Um, a, a brain injury. Let's first of all get that clear. When you go out there and watch any kind of movie, you see the hero getting on whack and he or a pistol over the head and then he goes down and he wakes back up and beats up the other guy and yeah. kisses the girl yeah yeah that's not a brain injury okay that's that is <laughs> that is fucking bullshit no yeah, that's not that okay goes. so either you die that's you know there's one outcome or for everyone who dies in a, in a nasty motor vehicle accident, there are free severe brain injuries. Where you, and when, when we talk severe, we are talking basically 24-hour um, care, you being a vegetable, you being extremely, extremely handicapped uh, or, or I, I might not use the right uh, politically correct words, but I sure. want to get a picture across there. Yeah. So, for someone who is three days in a hospital in a coma, um, that means something. Because someone who is knocked out, we typically give the brain a rest for 24 hours. And then we switch yeah. off sedation and we see who is at home, what's happening. Um, there yeah. was obviously no one at home and they actually kept going for three days. Yeah. So, this was not just a little knock that you had. So, that's setting the scene. What was the first yeah. thing you can remember? Well, that's kind of a funny story too. I remember waking up. 
you know, kind of coming to realize that well, I'm in a hospital bed and oh, everything hurts. And I, I kind of sat up and that hurt. And then I opened my eyes and I looked and my best friend, Lyle, my crew chief, because uh, you have two people on crew that follow you around the island for the race. Yeah. So Lyle, my best friend, he was sitting in a chair across the room from me. And I, I had this thought of like, I got to get up and finish the race. And then I kind of looked at Lyle and I thought, no, that's not what's coming next. Yeah. Where am I? And then he told me, you're in the hospital, you're in Oahu, you know, and you're on a different island and um, you crashed and you hit your head pretty good and you've know, you broken a few bones and stuff. And, and he told me what happened. I was like, wow, well, what day is it? And he says, well, it's, it's Monday night, <laughs> you know, and I'd crashed earlier on Saturday. So all of Saturday's gone, Sunday's gone, Monday's gone. Here we are like quite a while later. And, uh, when I talked to Lyle later, I found out that that was about the 10th time we had had that exact same conversation. And I, this was the first time that it stuck. And it was funny because my buddy Lyle had started to lie to the doctors. Um, he, he would say, the nurse would come, he'd go, oh, you know, a nurse was just here. He already got his injections. He already got his drugs. He's fine. He, she already did it. And he lied to them. And then they stopped giving me all the things to keep me basically unconscious. And then I came around and I started to be aware and I started to, you know, a bit of recovery and stuff. So it was interesting. He was kind of defending me from them. Maybe, I don't know, doctors might get mad that he did that. I'm happy he did, but he brought me around pretty fast and uh, went downstairs and got me a iced coffee, mocha, suite of Chino, Frappa, Hapa, whatever thing. And then I was more cognizant. I could think a little better and uh, I got released fairly soon after that. But it was interesting when I got back to Canada, 13 days later, I got my, I went to my doctor 12 days later and I said, you know, doc, something's wrong. Like my, my one shoulder dropped at like this horrible angle and I couldn't use it. And my arm really hurt when I, I turned it. I've like, it's called supination pronation. So palm up, palm down really hurt. And I was like, they said I sprained my wrist, but it feels way worse than that. And can we get this checked? He said, oh yeah. So he said, scheduled me for x-rays the next day. I went to the hospital in, in the neighboring city. And my wife and I just, we left, our son was in, in, in preschool and we just thought, oh, we'll do a, cool, a couple errands. We'll get this x-ray knocked out and we'll go home. And I, I got the x-ray done and the x-ray technologist was like, uh, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is I know why your arm hurts so much. The bad news is it's broken half. It's actually in three pieces. And She's like, I'm not allowed to say anything diagnostically, but your shoulder's in like four pieces. I don't know why they left you out of the hospital. It's shattered. Like you need surgery. So, oh, okay. So I went over to the emergency and they put me in, you know, I waited to get in because you've got to wait if you're not bleeding from the neck. And they eventually saw me and uh, Dr. Cinzia Godelli saw me and she was just like, okay, we're trying to prep a bed for you. I'm going to try to fit you into my surgery schedule for tomorrow. Like this is... So she was amazing. And uh, they put a big metal plate in my shoulder and a big metal plate in my arm. And, but she said, honestly, though, the biggest concern I have is your head. And so I had metal staples sticking out of it and stuff like that. So they did, they pulled the metal staples out because there was enough bone healing after two weeks um, that it was stable. The plate was stable and they did an MRI and a CAT scan and they did a deep scan and another deep scan and met with an, a, a neurologist and, and it was just all, they were really worried about my brain injury. And mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot of work on that. And I went and did hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatments for three nice. months. 
where they put you in a compression chamber and uh-huh. you breathe pure oxygen. And I really believe it's where I got my cogn- cognition back. And it's funny. I remember about two months after the surgery with a check-in with my, my doctor and my wife uh, asked, well, how's his recovery going compared to other people? And she said, well, I don't really know. I've got nothing to compare to. And my wife and I looked at each other and she said, my wife said, well, what do you mean by that? And the doctor said, well, okay, you've got, you had a hemorrhage to the frontal lobes, bleeding in the front of the brain, and you had a diffuse axonal scarring, which is the white matter and the gray matter tore apart and a point impact at the base where there was some real damage. She's like, according to all of the medical textbooks, you should be in a vegetative state with no ability to speak or do anything. So the fact that you're, I mean, you slur your words a little here and there, but you are essentially fine and you can remember things. She's like, it's unheard of. So I am pretty friggin' lucky and grateful. No, no. You know? Uh, luck has a little bit to do with it. Right. But I think let's be, let's be quite clear about that. You had primed your body to be in a perfect state for nutritional purposes as well yeah. as for uh, its function. The function, there is a function to go all out and then there's a function to rest, restore yourself. You have trained that cycle really well. And yeah. um, so therefore your body knew how to heal itself. Yeah. Um, if I think you had some fantastic medical input and you yes. had a fantastic mindset so yeah. all of these things work together. The role of the uh, hyperbaric medicine uh, is uh, is an interesting one there. Um, I'm not sure that that it is so clear. I mean, it's certainly head injury in its own right is not one of the recognized indications for hyperbaric medicine. Yet, mm. at the same token, here it was giving you a additional boost, uh, and maybe additional healing. Um, and it is amazing to hear your story. Certainly for me as a doctor, as an anesthetist who has treated head injuries in the intensive care, um, mm. your story is extremely, extremely rare, I would say. And mm. um, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. The sheer fact that you're sitting here with me and <sighs> talking about in, in those lucid terms um, yeah. without any neurological impairment that I can see, maybe yeah. a, ba- a bad humor, but I think that was maybe more <laughs> genetic than anything else. That is an amazing, amazing thing. Okay. So you- I, I think people need to realize too, that it wasn't, it wasn't straightforward. You know, I had to work with a neurologist and I had to do all the training, you know, where you take the lighted pen and you follow it to the quadrants of your eyes and you have the Stroops test and you've got the the words on the wall where it says green, yellow, red, orange, blue, but it's not the color that it says, right? It says green, but it's red and it says blue, but it's yellow. And so I had with a timer, stopwatch going, I had to say either the word or the color and go down the list and it was timed how fast I could do it. I got to tell you the first time I did that bloody test, hmm. it was awful. I would just stare at the word and like, what color is it? Like it says green, but it's, that's not green. Like it's it just like you're stewing over it. You're like, come on, this shouldn't be that hard. And 
it was tough for a long time. My coordination sucked. And it was like, there was a delay when I would go for a run, there was a delay from when my foot hit the ground and my brain knew it was there. There's just a split second delay. And, and that resulted in a couple of years after the crash, I was running in Arizona at training camp and I tripped and I went right down face down and I dislocated couple fingers. I gloved one to the ligaments and folded it all the way backwards. They basically had to sew it back on and I sprained the other ones. And because there's that, there was that cognitive delay. Right. And so Scott, it was not an easy journey. You're a bloody donkey, aren't you? This is <laughs> Scott. Here you are going from virtually brain dead um, to going out there. Oh yeah. Then there's that story about that finger. Shall we just have a look at those two years in between? They might just be of relevance to people yeah. out there, sort of more more people who are less focused on their training and rather focused on actually life. Um, yeah. My goodness. Could, when was the first time you recognized your wife? Um, <laughs> um, right away. Like that was, the cognition was there right. um, for that kind of stuff. But it's interesting that you mentioned that that was, and still is a little bit of, of kind of one of the leftover pieces is um, remembering names and faces I struggle with. I remember, cause I was very active in rotary and I was maybe six or eight months after the crash. And I was at the meeting and I would, my job for the day was to be the greeter. So people come in, there's a list of 25 people and I check you in, you've arrived and you had lunch and you're, and they would, somebody would walk in, somebody I've known for 15 years. I've had lunch with them every week for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is your name? Mm -hmm. Oh, what is your name? What is your mm -hmm. name? What is your name? I totally know who that is. What is mm -hmm. your name? And I'd look at the list and it wouldn't help. Mm -hmm. And then about five minutes later, oh, that's Dan. Okay. There's Dan. Mm -hmm. So that, that was tough. That was really hard because at the gym, I was, I had a reputation for like a gym member had left, moved town, gone for three years, come back. And I'd see him in the grocery store. I go, Bill, how you doing? I'm like, you remember my name? Uh, I had that reputation and it was gone. I didn't know people's names that I should, I didn't know relatives names. I, like, so that was, that was hard. And it's still a point of weakness, but it's, it's a lot better. Um, but it's still, still a thing. How were your emotions? Good. You know, I was really lucky that, I don't remember the crash. Like I say, the hard drive stopped recording. So yeah. I'm very lucky that I don't remember that. Yeah. I've actually really lucky that way or, or what I'm good. Like I was never, there wasn't a lot of fear around it. I couldn't wait to get back to racing again. I, in the hospital, the moment I woke up, I knew I would be back and I would finish the race. Like that was never a question mark. Yeah. And I was pretty good. So with that, you're referring to was there PTSD, was there post-traumatic right. stress disorder as a flow-on effect of the accident. What I'm referring to is that often the frustration and the slow treacle-like healing after a head yeah. injury is incredibly frustrating. That's true. And, and people, <laughs> people tend to from now and then have outbursts because the frontal lobe is who you are that yeah. is essentially uh, changing you so whilst right now i'm talking to scott the, the guy who is out there there's also the, the vulnerable scott in there there's also the, the the frustrated scott in there how were these guys manifesting themselves Were you a nice guy to be around or did actually your child say, Oh God, no, I better don't come home today. No, I was 
pretty good in many senses, but I did develop a short fuse on my temper that I'd never had before. I was quick to anger with things, right? Frustrated by th- gravity was angry. <laughs> I get angry at gravity, right? And that kind of stuff was frustrating. And even to this day, you know, my fingers are, they're a little slow and they don't straighten all the way. Mm. And it's frustrating. I can't, I I miss things. I can't grab Mm. stuff. So my manual dexterity and stuff that used to be excellent is now okay. Mm. So that was, there was, there was definitely some frustration. There's a lot of frustration, how slow it took for everything to happen. And Mm. I had the, the metal plate taken out of my arm, take out of my shoulder in July of 2016. And that was great. And then I was thinking, okay, good. I started back to some training. I started running right away. The doctor told me I could run 30 days after the, that's actually a funny story too, but you know, I'm laying in the hospital. She just put me back together for five hours and she says, do you have any questions for me? I'm like, when can I train again? She's like, I just rebuilt you. So that was like my first question for my doctor out of surgery. But anyway, I was starting to train again in February of 2017, I was goofing around with some guys and I folded my knee back and the MCL that had been not diagnosed as torn was uh, adhered to a piece of cartilage in my knee uh, joint. Okay. And when my knee did complete flexion, it tore free and there was this big pop sound. And I thought, Oh my God, what did I just do? And yeah. I, so then you go to the doctor and I had MRI and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, Oh yeah, you've got a big flap of cartilage. That's completely torn from the crash. And it had, it had healed to the torn, right. The torn ligament. So, um, so I had to go into surgery and they had to rebuild that. They had to shave out the piece of cartilage and fix the, M- the MCL. And so mm. got that all done. And then that was 2017 and I was signed up for uh, Ironman Coeur d'Alene. So I had, a very short window for, so for three months I couldn't run at all. And I started running again, started cycling after the surgery when I was allowed. And I think I had a five week build program to build up to Ironman for lane in August of, of 2017. And I, I crossed the finish line in order to reapply for 2018 Ultraman world championships. I had to be under 14 hours. And I think I ran like a 1357 or something. Like I was like, I had three minutes spare to cross the finish line to apply to the world championship so I could go back in 2018. So it was one hell of a journey, like very, very emotional in a lot of different senses. I would love to now look 20 years ahead and, and talk with you about your total knee joint replacement that is basically on the cards um, because you have got the cartilage damage there. You, I mean, the, your your ultra-endurance sport will leave a mark on your body, however good your nutrition is, however good the aftermath, aftercare is. Um, it will be... Uh, <laughs> you know damage. what I'm thinking right now? I'm thinking, la, 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 now this thing, la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's exactly how I expect you to be. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that in my head, Scott. At the same token, you might actually prove me wrong. And there are many people out there who have just because they go through these cycles of trauma healing trauma healing in 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 a micro way every day they their body is is able to do things that normally don't really happen 
Okay, here yeah. you've proven doctors wrong once. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it is, I think there are some people out there who are pushing the boundaries of what we understand as doctors. And you may very well be one of those. And for that, I'm humbled that I have you on my show, that we can actually explore that, that, yeah. that stuff. Because it just shows that don't ever give up. Don't give a, ever give up. Just they say you can't do that. Well, maybe not set out to prove them wrong, but why not set out to prove them wrong? Okay, let's let's call it what it is. You know, it is actually. Um, yeah. Do do never stop trying. Do never yeah. give up. I think that is the key message, is it not? It really is. You know, one of my favorite quotes in that sense, and there's there's tons of them. I I'm a yeah a big fan of podcasts and a big fan of audiobooks, And I, uh, I love to constantly be learning. One of my favorite quotes is by Babe Ruth and um, Babe Ruth was an American baseball player and he held the, the home run record for 40 years, 714 home runs. Now I don't follow baseball. I don't watch yeah, baseball. I couldn't yeah. possibly care any less about baseball, but I like people who are really good at the sport that they do. Mm. And Babe Ruth was the home ring home run champion for about 40 years and he had 714 home runs. Well, what people don't realize is he was also the strikeout record holder for 1,300 and something odd strikeouts. And he had been at bat over 8,000 times. And his saying is, it's hard to beat a person that never gives up. <laughs> and I love it. Like you look at Michael Jordan, right? Arguably one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Do you know that his like shooting a basket is called a field goal? His field goal percentage was only 49%. Like he missed more than he hit. Uh, and he shot at the basket. I believe the stat is something like 25,000 times and made 12,000 of them. Like, <laughs> like it's fascinating. People go, Oh, Michael Jordan's so great. Like if you look at his stats, like what a loser, he missed more than half the time. Yeah. You know, you look at Babe Ruth, what a loser. He like went up to bat and missed like 7,500 times. Yeah. He got to swing at the ball. Oh. Right. And never quit. One of my favorite sayings that I have that I coach with my clients when I'm, I'm teaching them stuff um, is, is uh, AFC NGU. And AFCNGU stands for this action, feedback, correction, never give up. Oh, nice. You're going to take an action. You're going to take an action in whatever you do. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're going to take an action. You're going to get some feedback. Now, you got to look at that feedback. It's either carry on or correct or continue, right? So, so correct or continue. So, action, you're going to get some feedback. Then you either continue because it's working or you make a correction and then you take some more action. You're going to get some feedback and you make a correction, take some action, get some feedback, make a correction, take some action and never give up. It is impossible to fail. It's impossible because like you'll just keep figuring it out till you get there. That's one of my favorite things. I love it as a mnemonic and as an acronym for ex exactly what I do in my life. Um, I have stuffed up so many times, but mm -hmm. I don't give up. I just, sometimes you have to regroup and sometimes you have to redirect and say, actually, you know, there is, there is, there are some dead horses that you just can't ride. So there, there sure. might be things where you say in a business deal, no, I'm sorry, enough is enough. Yeah. The, the numbers right. don't work anymore. Or in a yes. relationship, actually, yep. the emotions don't work anymore. But, and that's a correction. 
Correct. That's correct. Right. Absolutely. When I looked at my business, I'm like, I've been taking every action in the world. I've had the best business coaches in the world and I'm getting feedback that says, Scotty, this doesn't work anymore. Make a correction. Because if I was to just continue, ignore the feedback and continue and just keep taking action, ignore the feedback, continue, take some action, ignore the feedback, continue. Mm -hmm. You're an idiot. Correct. (laughs) You are an idiot. Right now, that's it. That the, the definition of insanity is yeah. try the same again over and over and expect a different outcome. So yeah. that is that is so true. That is that is so true. No two ways around it. So no, yeah. we both actually live very very similar lives with that core principle, with that core belief that we have started to to put into action after after some interesting interesting <laughs> detours in our journeys i must say <laughs> but yeah. man ah uh, oh, you're an amazing man scott there is no two ways around that and i just really wonder who you will be when you grow up um yeah. so <laughs> so what's your future what are you working on right now well you know i'm really trying to help people as best i can i love yeah what I get to do right now. I coach people. I've got a 21 day nutrition reset program where I get people back to real food and, and just single ingredient foods and get rid of the junk. And it's all the food. Like it's not a super restrictive pendulum diet. It's a, it's a healthy, normal way to eat in a sense. And I love doing that. It's, it's 21 days. Anybody can manage that. And I've just had such fantastic success with doing that. And I love it. I've also got a six week program that I do. And of course we made the documentary film warrior code film. And so it's free on YouTube. Now we've won a bunch of awards and stuff. So that's really great. And I love sharing that with people. I I want to inspire people to be their best. That's what I want to do. If I can take all the things I've done and learned and go, you know what, you can be amazing. You need to just give yourself some love, take care of yourself and, and, I love coaching on all of that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I coach some people in person. I've got some online athletes that I have, I'm training for hundred mile runs and Ironmans and stuff. I've got a few athletes that I coach in my stable like that, but I get to do all these great things in coaching and helping people. And, and I do keynote talks all the time and I, I love it. I am living this amazing. I, I'm so passionate about helping people and sharing my goofy little journey and, and letting people learn from it. Right. <laughs> It's beautiful. Scott McDermott, uh, the one and only. That's all I can say. (laughs) And guys, if you're interested about this journey, look down there into the description of the podcast and of the YouTube video, because all the links are in there, including a link to his website. So absolutely. So guys, life is too short. Um, And where in whatever quagmire you're at the moment trapped, there is a way out and this way might not be easy and it might not be apparent, but there will be a way out. And that is what I explore on this show. So therefore, whilst you're down there, you might as well uh, press the like button on the video and on the, on the podcast and press the subscribe button so that you don't, uh, that you get reminded of all the beautiful things that we are bringing out here. Scott, you're an amazing man. It was an honor to meet you. And it is, um, I, I can't wait to do a follow-up interview in, in a year or two years time to see where you have gone. Because like me, you are not stopping. You, are, you have got that energy and we both are addicted to making a difference. 
and therefore let's see what opportunities arise in your life uh, i see what happens in my life and i'm certainly embracing new opportunities and new challenges with open arms because there's so much we can do we can truly make this world a better place and yep. You are on your mission. I'm on my mission. What was to happen if we actually combine a few of us together and start start working together towards that goal? I'm mm. sure. I'm sure there's going to be an amazing journey. And you guys out there, it's an open invite. Um, you know, just join us in our movement and join us in our madness. Okay. Uh, a bit of a sprinkle of madness needs to be on top of. And otherwise, you right. know, it's just it's just boring. <laughs> yeah. Scott, you're an amazing man. Thank you so much for being guest on my show. You're very welcome. Thanks cool. for having me. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye. Dream.